1: Good afternoon, happy Thanksgiving, and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. This week marked World Mental Health Day, and we'll look at the intergenerational angle with psychologist Dr. Oren Amitay and... With just over a week before the election, we talked to the author of a second Trudeau biography that assesses his four years in power. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Retirement plans for some 20,000 American GE workers just got derailed. The ailing manufacturer announced this week it's freezing pensions in an attempt to reduce its $8 billion pension deficit – Current retirees already receiving pension payments will not be affected and no new hires have been enrolled in the pension plan since 2012. Workers can still access the amount already accrued, but potential earnings are lost, leaving them scrambling to create their own plans for their retirements. Don't just try to copy what other people do. Just
0: find out. Who you are, and what your talents are.
1: That's 97-year-old German-born John B. Goodenough. He's one of the three men awarded the Nobel Prize for Chemistry this week and becomes the oldest laureate ever. He edged out Arthur Ashkin, who last year, at age 96, was awarded the Nobel Physics Prize. Goodenough, Akira Yoshino and M. Stanley Whittingham are being recognized for their work on lithium-ion batteries, which they claim are indispensable for creating a low-carbon society powered by renewable energies. A new study finds a Canadian innovation can help reduce a medication overload often dangerous to seniors. Dr. Emily MacDonald of McGill University Centre studied patients 65 and up who took five or more medications a day. She found doctors could safely reduce the number of meds given to their patients by using a tool called MedSafer. It checks the different combinations prescribed to a patient and offers a recommendation of whether any can be safely stopped or reduced. Last week, we told you former U.S. President Jimmy Carter became the first U.S. President to reach the age of 95. This week, he's back in the news.
0: Well, first of all, I want to explain my black eye.
1: Carter received 14 stitches after a bad fall at his Georgia home, but that didn't keep him from his humanitarian work. He says he feels fine and was back building homes with Habitat for Humanity. A German photographer is shaking things up in the modeling world. All his subjects are 100 years old and featured in his book, Aging Gracefully. 54-year-old Karsten Thormalen said he was disgusted with an industry where 14-year-old girls were being photographed for anti-aging creams. So he trains his lens on centenarians to show beauty at any age and to change perceptions around aging. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. This week we marked World Mental Health Day with mental or substance disorders affecting up to 20% of Canadians every year. It manifests in different ways as we move through the life cycle. Psychologist Dr. Oren Amitay told me Zoomers are more prone to depression while he believes the younger generation lacks the resilience to cope with the ups and downs of life.
2: As you start feeling that your body is no longer doing what it used to do, it brings forth a sense of uh, mortality. So now you start getting into existential questions as to what have what have I done with my life? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? Do I foresee, you know, a, a positive future?
1: What are the types of mental illness that most hit older people?
2: We get a lot of um, depression. Uh, that that's quite common among older people. Um, now, interestingly, we we know that when you look at um, let's say satisfaction in life. Uh, older people do much better than younger people. Absolutely. It seems counterintuitive. Uh, but that's for the people who kind of have a better handle on where they are and what their life is like. So we do get that. As we get older, older, of course, then we have issues like with dementia. And when you have any physical ailments, we know that A, they directly can exacerbate any underlying, for example, depression or anxiety. Uh, B, um, that you know not just not just the actual medical condition itself, but the feelings of almost, you know, you're losing your self-efficacy. I'm not as I'm not able to do what I used to do. I can't pull a an all nighter to get work done and so on. So that can contribute to as well. And any health issue, if it feeds into problems with stress, stress exacerbates everything.
1: What about social isolation?
2: When you get older, for sure, especially if, um, and interestingly, it's, it's often for uh, older men. Because um, if their spouse passes before them, which is we know is not that common, but if they do, oftentimes in a heterosexual relationship, the wife was the uh, the social uh, coordinator, uh, right? Um, Whether it's within family or friends. And so when you lose that person, the isolation can come quite quickly. Uh, you don't have the contacts um, that, that she had before. And um, and if you're grieving, for example, it's very easy, especially when you're older, to dig yourself into a deep hole and feel that you can't come out of it. Like you isolate yourself. Uh, nobody understands you. You don't feel like uh, you know trying to put on a brave face for anybody. You think people are tired of hearing you complain about you know your unfortunate lot in life when you've lost a spouse. I mean, this is the kind of thoughts that go through the minds of my older patients, um, and others, unfortunately, here's the other sad thing, if they haven't lost a spouse, but they've come to the realization that the spouse that they are with, this is not necessarily the person that they want to spend the next 10, 20, or 30 years with, and that usually happens once the children have left the home, because, you know, if you're... Great divorce. That's right, exactly. There's a phenomenon. The
1: theme of this year's World Mental Health Day is suicide prevention and the cohort most likely to take their own lives are uh, men, white men over 45?
2: Right. And um, you know because they are facing some of the most pressures uh, when it comes to either financial burdens of, of the children, themselves, their spouse, their parents, but also it's this mythos that they're trying to live up to that I should be at a certain place at 45 or 55 or 60, uh, that if they're not there, They feel that they haven't lived up to those expectations, and if when you're younger, that's hard. I deal with many young people who feel they're behind the curve, and it just stresses them out, and they almost feel like giving up. They're a few steps behind, and it feels like it's a mile behind. Well, in reality, they have many years to catch up. They can find a better career. They can go back to school. They can do so many things that don't feel very feasible when you're older. And then they think, well, you know, I don't have enough time to do all these things that I need to do to correct the course. So sadly, a lot of those men feel that the easier option is to leave.
1: But you're saying that in terms of mental illness, there are certain things that are more prevalent among young people. And and you think that's a new thing.
2: Certainly one aspect of it is totally new, which is there's a loss of meaning, a loss of purpose. They just don't feel that there's any Long-term goal, they're living in the now. For example, whether it's just for having fun or whether just scraping by, they just don't feel that there's more to life necessarily. And when you're lacking in that, it's hard to keep going forward. You need to feel and it. Doesn't have to be religion; it can be anything where you feel that my efforts are contributing somehow to something greater than me. It can be family, it can be society, your neighborhood, right? But people aren't feeling that. But one of the reasons they don't feel that, and this is what's the most damaging, and I see it from a very young age, that their parents. They are, you know, protecting them from the realities of life. They're not allowing them to fail at a young age, which is when you're supposed to be able to fail, because then you learn to pick yourself up. And that builds resilience. Having a facade of uh, infallibility when you're young and believing that everything is everyone else's fault. No sense of accountability, personal accountability.
1: So is this the old story of the boomer
2: helicopter parents? It, it seems like it pretty much, but it's taken a different turn. It's gotten even worse. And, and it's not just the parents, though. Now the whole systems, schools, universities, all the safe spaces, they are doing everything that clinical psychologists know are literally the antithesis of good mental health. If you have a fear, if you have a, a perceived limitation, the way to deal with it is not to run away from it. It's to confront it in a healthy manner.
1: Is there uh, anything positive that you can leave us with?
2: The take home message is learn what I myself can do in a small area of my life, feel like I've mastered it, and then try to apply those types of principles to other areas where I might be feeling a bit kind of like I'm floundering. Start small, get the confidence, and then apply it to other areas. And, you know, it, it's kind of a recipe for success. I can't guarantee success, but it is steps to, cha- you know, to writing the course if you've been off course.
1: Dr. Orin Amitay, thanks so much.
2: Thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: That was psychologist Dr. Oren Amitay. Two biographies of Justin Trudeau with two very different takes came out just in time for the election campaign. We featured John Iveson's education of a prime minister early on, but I've held on to Aaron Wary's book rather than running it at the height of the blackface scandal, which happened well after it was written. Wary had lots of access to the prime minister as he wrote Promise and Peril. And his take is that Trudeau had a lofty, ambitious agenda, even if it didn't always work out.
3: I mean, I think really, if you go back to the eulogy he delivered for, uh, for obviously his father in a, more than a decade ago now, from that moment forward, he really becomes somebody who is looked at as a future politician as a future leader as a potential successor to his father from that point forward he's always discussed in terms of what he could do or what he could be and and could he live up to his last name and could he be that sort of figure that his father was then once he does decide to get into politics and particularly when he decides to run for leader he starts taking on both some significant issues and a a large number of promises. So he he starts trying to talk in in fairly significant and lofty terms about things like economic inequality, climate change, reconciliation, diversity. A lot of the big issues that have now emerged over the last five years are sort of the big issues of this time. And uh, his campaign in 2015 ends up resting on a platform been included by one count, 353 individual promises, which is far and away more than any gov- any party has has come to government with in recent memory. It's in, it's in fact, uh, you know, in some cases almost twice as much as some parties have come to government with. So, and and I think another part of that too is the fact that he just comes into it with. Huge expectations and huge hope that ends up being invested in him uh, in November 2015. And so it's all of those things that kind of end up weighing, I think, on the last four years, both sort of the individual potential that was always thought of in terms of him and then just what he had come to represent and what he had come to promise to do.
1: What's the peril?
3: One is the simple peril of of possibly not living up to all of those promises, of falling short of the potential and the expectation that surrounded him. And then I think the other part of it is that what we've seen over the last, let's say, four years, at least since the Trump election, I think in particular, is this sense that things are kind of falling apart, that progress is is not guaranteed, that we're not quite sure where liberal democracy is going, we're not quite sure where the international world order is going. We're not sure about issues like climate change. We're not sure about how uh, Western democracies should function or whether they can function anymore. There is this, this sense that things are very precarious right now. And I think that is I think that is an undertone that, that runs throughout these last four years. You talked to
1: him about SNC-Lavalin. That's uh, right at the beginning of the book.
3: It became obviously a major issue. It became a, an issue that was still developing as we were trying to finish the book. It at least allowed for uh, some extended conversations between him and I about what exactly had happened there, and his sense of what had happened there, and what sort of how he reflects back on it. And so, and
1: is it different from what he has said in public? Because uh, the feeling is that he's he's sort of sorry not sorry. He's not apologized.
3: Right. So the one thing is that is consistent uh, throughout is this idea that he he and I think most people in this government are fairly certain and fairly adamant that they don't think they did anything wrong, that they felt they were acting on the right side of the law and of, of uh, the sort of constitutional norms. What he had, get, what he did get into me with me a bit more was, first of all, his relationship with Jody Wilson-Raybould building up to SNC-Lavalin and the sense that there was a disconnect between the two of them, that there was a frustration that had built up on his side. And then Further to that, the efforts he made or the efforts, the approach he took after this became public in those two months when this was sort of a rolling crisis of, you know, trying to find a happy ending here that would somehow bring everyone back into the fold. And in some cases, the 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 advice he got that that wasn't the best approach and ultimately the, the fact that he couldn't quite get there. As much as he has tried to do politics differently, he hasn't been able to completely Uh, change the way politics are done. He has had to make some of these concessions to political reality.
1: Well, there are people who say he doesn't do politics differently at all, and that's the conservative slogan, That's he's not who he says he is. Is there validity to that?
3: He has fallen short on these things, but he's also a guy who who participates in town hall uh, question and answer sessions with the public. He marches in pride parades. There are things he's done that are very different than his predecessor, but no, he hasn't he hasn't followed through completely on all of those things that he said he would do.
1: There's still a lot of people who say that he is the selfie prime minister, he's the celebrity prime minister. They say that he's he's not that bright. He must be aware of this.
3: Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, I think from the very start he has always been aware that there are people who, to go back to what I said earlier, there are people who invest a great deal of hope and expectation in him, and there are are people who think he is the exact opposite. He's a lightweight. He has no idea what he's doing. The only reason he's here is because he's handsome and he has a nice last name, or a famous last name. I think he's very constantly conscious of those things. I think to a certain degree, he uh, relishes being underestimated. He likes the fact that people uh, take him for granted or take his seriousness for granted. The flip side of that is, if you look over the last four years, there have been moments where he has not, he has, he and his office have not been careful enough to avoid reinforcing the worst impressions.
1: Aaron Wery, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That was Aaron Wary, author of Promise and Peril, Justin Trudeau in Power. And that brings us to the end of this edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Happy Thanksgiving, and thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Paul Thomas, Faz Kazi, and Justin Ecock. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.